Welcome back to the Untold History of the United States. In today's episode, we will be covering American foreign policy during the transition period out of the Cold War and what the disappearance of the bilateralism between the U.S. and the USSR meant for America's intervention around the world. To talk more on the subject, I welcome a returning guest, Professor Peter Kuznick from the American University. Great to see you again, Professor. Be with you, Matt. So last time we spoke, we talked about how relations between the Soviets and the Americans could have been resolved because Gorbachev was willing to talk and negotiate, but obviously the Americans were not willing to. Gorbachev was also fiercely advocating for the banning of all weapons in space at the UN conference in December of 88. And Gorbachev, as you said, Professor, was really one of the most important figures in the 20th century for his vision of peace in the world. But I want to talk about the fall of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and early 90s, as it seems that Gorbachev was not set to spill blood for the sake of keeping the Soviet Union, correct? Yeah, Gorbachev had been calling for perestroika. So uh, Gorbachev had staked out a democratic position and wanted to retain the Soviet Union, but in a new form of democratic socialism. And he thought that that was possible. However, once he began to open up and allow democratic elections uh, in, in country after country, uh, the whole thing started to fall apart. Professor, I want to talk a little bit about George Herbert Walker Bush, who was the president during this transition period in the Soviet Union. So he came from a well-distinguished New England family. He went to Yale, fought in World War II, and his father, who was Prescott Bush, was a Wall Street executive investment banker. Bush represented that classic American republicanism of that time, correct? Well, his father, Prescott Bush, had gotten himself in trouble because he was in bed as a Wall Street investment broker with the uh, a lot of German business and a lot of American businesses doing work with Nazi Germany. So he got investigated uh, during and after World War II because of his connections. Uh, George H.W. Bush came out of you know, that, that same Connecticut family, but he established roots in Texas. So somehow he got transformed into a Texan, but it was not easy for him because he had the reputation of being a wimp. It's, uh, it's very strange that George H.W. Bush would be considered a wimp. He was the captain of the Yale baseball team. My father-in-law used to watch him play at Yale. Uh, he was also a fighter pilot during uh, World War II. So he, this is not a wimpy man in any sense, but his image was that of being a wimp, mm -hmm. which was unfortunate because it made him want to stand up in a much more macho way than he might have uh, otherwise in a number of conflicts. And uh, so he's going to show, prove that he's not a wimp. And he's going to, the people he's going to appoint around him are also going to be uh, a lot of hardliners for the most part. So Bush had been implicated in the Iran-Contra scheme during the campaign, he said that he's been out of the loop, no operational role in all the illegal operations. But in his diary, he wrote, I'm one of the few people that fully know the details, but he didn't get really tarnished by that scandal as so many other of the Reagan people did. So when he takes over, uh, he puts together a foreign policy team 
That included James Baker at State Department, Dick Cheney, Secretary of Defense, Brent Scowcroft, General Scowcroft as a National Security Advisor. Scowcroft chose Robert Gates as his number two man. And then you had Paul Wolfowitz taking over as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Baker was fairly reasonable, but most of the rest of them were hardliners and hawkish. Uh, and Bush's policies were surprised many people in how hawkish and confrontational they were. Gorbachev, as we know, had reached out to both to Reagan and to George H.W. Bush. And I think we talked last time about that extraordinary December 1988 speech that Gorbachev made. Right. Uh, and the response to that in the West was that this was the greatest act of statesmanship that has occurred really maybe in the entire 20th century. The New York Times compared it to Wilson's 14 points and the Atlantic Charter. Uh, and But the comments about it, uh, the Times says that it's breathtaking, risky, bold, naive, diversionary, heroic. So there was that real potential because Gorbachev was reaching out to Bush to work together to solve the world's problems in a peaceful way. And when the there's a lot of pressure on the Gorbachev to intervene militarily to stop the toppling of pro-Soviet governments in, throughout Eastern Europe or the collapse, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Gorbachev refused to do that. Right. So Gorbachev was allowing, I mean, the Berlin Wall falls on November 9th, 1989. So that all these changes were taking place. Uh, it's in early 1990 that, that Gorbachev allows for the reunification of Germany. So there's a lot of things taking place right around that time in late 1989, early 1990, in which the world could have looked very, very different than it did at that point. And Professor, I want to talk now about what you said about uh, Bush's foreign policy, specifically talking about Latin America and the Middle East. So what was the purpose for the Americans to invade Panama in 1989, knowing that Manuel Noriega was on the payroll of the CIA? Noriega had been on the payroll of the CIA going back to the 1960s. He was our boy there. Uh, he twice attended the U.S. Army School of the Americas in the Panama Canal Zone. He was a strong man. He was our strong man. He was a tyrant, but he was our tyrant, the dictator, but our dictator also was very important in our wars in Central America against the, in El Salvador and also in our support for the Contras. So he had been a very loyal foot soldier for the United States uh, for decades. But this was a time when, first of all, Bush wanted to show how strong he was. Uh, and when uh, when Nor Noriega was indicted on U.S. federal drug charges in 1988 and then was involved in overturning the presidential election in Panama in 1989, the uh, American leaders saw this as an opportunity to act. And uh, so in December of 1989, Bush decided to act unilaterally. But you have to appreciate the timing. The Berlin Wall had just fallen one dictatorship after another fallen throughout Eastern Europe. And now, the, so and the, everybody was applauding Gorbachev's restraint, his democracy, his peaceful approach. And what does the United States do? We send 15,000 troops 
into Panama to assist the 12,000 who are already over there to overthrow the Noriega government. Right. We call it Operation Just Cause. And we've got Dick Cheney, the Secretary of Defense, saying, I think we as a government bent over backwards to avoid having to take military action. <laughs> sure. I said that we had to do it because American lives were at risk. Well, nobody was convinced. The Organization of American States voted 20 to 1 to, quote, deeply deplore the U.S. invasion. The U.N. Security Council was going to also do the same thing, except the U.S. vetoed it. And so this was an appalling example of gunboat diplomacy, old school U.S. military aggression uh, that was applauded by even Colin Powell. Hmm. Powell uh, says, we have to put a shingle outside our door saying superpower lives here, no matter what the Soviets do, even if they evacuate from Eastern Europe. And so Powell, again, as he did so many times in his career, uh, legitimized a very, very rotten operation. So uh, Noriega managed to elude U.S. forces for about a week, but uh, overall, the situation turned out to be disastrous for the Panamanian people, uh, many thousands of whom were killed in this U.S. military operation. And are our relationships between Panama and the U.S. improved over time? Well, they have improved over time. Um, it's funny because Oliver Stone and I got a uh, were contacted by Noriega's lawyer. Noriega was in jail, and this was just a few years ago after Untold History came out, and he asked if we would come down to Panama. Noriega wanted us to come down to Panama. He thought that if we did a documentary with him, uh, that that would somehow uh, help him finally gain his freedom. So um, we were at least curious. So we pursued it and we said, well, is Noriega willing to tell the truth about his relationship to the CIA and to the US military and his involvement with the Contras? And we got a wishy-washy kind of response. So we never mm. followed up on that. But um, I'm not sure what the latest is between US and, and Panama but the, it was a very important turning point in terms of world politics when the U.S. basically showed the hypocrisy of applauding Gorbachev's restraint, but saying that there is no need for us to show any restraint at all uh, wherever we want to act unilaterally. And now I guess Bush is well known, most well known for the Gulf War. And so I want to talk a little bit about the relationship that had existed prior with uh, Reagan and Saddam Hussein. And why did that, uh, that relationship between Hussein and, and uh, the White House change when Bush 41 comes to power? Well, it didn't really change that fast. Uh, during the Reagan period, this was the time of the Iran-Iraq war. Right. And initially, we had been supporting both sides, basically. Uh, but there was the, still a lot of tension between the U.S. and Iran after the 1979 hostage taking and the overthrow of the Shah. Uh, so we started to provide arms and intelligence to the Iraqis. We, we played a very important role in terms of giving the Iraqis the ingredients that they used for their chemical weapons program. 
And it was Donald Rumsfeld who went over there and delivered a lot of this during the 1980s. So, and, and when, the, when Saddam used his chemical weapons to crush the Kurdish resistance at Halabja, uh, the United States defended him basically. The United States did not protest. And in fact, they tried to blame the uh, Iranians for using chemical weapons themselves. Uh, which was not true at the time. So the United States was playing, a, again, a corrupt role in terms of what was happening with Iran and Iraq during that period. But we were pretty much uh, cozying up to Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein had legitimate grievances with Kuwait. Kuwait was demanding that Iraq repay the money it had borrowed to wage the war against Iran. Uh, Kuwait was also refusing to abide by the OPEC oil quotas, which is driving down the price of oil at a time when the Iraqis desperately needed that revenue in order to repay uh, the $40 billion in debts they had built up over those years. Uh, and so uh, they infuriated Saddam further when uh, Kuwait uh, rejected Iraq, Iraq's claims on the border dispute. And so Saddam met with the US ambassador, April Glaspie in Baghdad on July 25th, 1990. And basically Glaspie said that the US wants better relations, friendlier relations, and said that the US has no opinion on the border dispute between Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, and the United States was not friendly with Kuwait. Mm. I remember uh, it was Daniel Patrick Moynihan who describes Kuwait. He said, it's a particularly poisonous enemy of the United States whose anti-Semitism was at the level of the personally loathsome. So the United States had no great love for Kuwait and right. signaled what, um, what April Glaspie, what Saddam Hussein interpreted Glaspie's friendly remarks and really um, non-confrontational approach and non-committal attitude on Iraqi-Kuwaiti tensions, he thought that that was a green light, that the U.S. was saying, you can go in there and do what you want to do. Right. And so the following week after he meets with Glaspie, uh, the Iraqis send three divisions into Kuwait and they gave Iraq control of one-fifth of the world's oil supplies. Uh, Glaspie comments, uh, she says, I, tells the New York Times, I didn't think, and nobody else did, that the Iraqis were going to take all of Kuwait. Well, right. yeah. that was, that was uh, so, uh, the, so then the question is, how is the U.S. going to respond to this? And what, they, what the U.S. policy was, in order to manufacture this war spirit, in order to go into uh, Kuwait and Iraq and bomb in Baghdad and send US troops in, the US convinces the Saudis through what appears to be doctored photos uh, that there was a massive uh, co coalescence of Iraqi troops on the Saudi border, that the Iraqis were about to invade Saudi Arabia. And from a number of reports in US press that looked at other satellite photos of what was happening on the border, there were no Iraqi troops mobilized there. And so, but this was 
what Schwarzkopf and, and Powell and Cheney brought to Saudi Arabia's King Fahd, and they convinced him with these photos that they, he should allow U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia. That's a game changer because right. the U.S. wanted to put troops into that region, and now we finally get the chance. And meanwhile, uh, the, uh, the, the um, American leaders are talking about this massive, powerful Iraqi army that's going to pose this great threat. On top of that, they drummed up more uh, support for the invasion with this massive propaganda campaign. So you've got George H.W. Bush comparing Saddam Hussein to Hitler. You've got the Israeli press leading the charge, saying that Bush's failure to act powerfully there and strongly there is uh, equivalent to Chamberlain at Munich, you know, and that Bush is a wimp. Bush is a coward. Uh, and meanwhile, the U.S. sanctions are destroying the Iraqi economy. Had they held on to the sanctions a little bit longer, that would have sufficed to force the Iraqis out of Kuwait, as the experts were all saying. Uh, but to make sure that the U.S. invaded, the Kuwaiti government hired the world's largest public relations firm, Hill & Knowlton, to sell the war. Uh, and the, uh, their Washington director, Craig Fuller, uh, who had been Bush's chief of staff when he was vice president, uh, now ran the largest foreign-funded uh, manipulation effort of the U.S. public opinion ever undertaken to that point. And the piece de resistance, piece de resistance came in October, in October 10th hearings of Congress's Human Rights Caucus, as it was called, when a 15-year-old girl testified that she had been in the hospital in Kuwait when Iraqi troops burst in, took babies from the incubators, threw them on the floor to die, on the cold floor to die, and took the incubators. George H.W. Bush repeated that story over and over and over again. And everybody thought that this was true. It later turns out that it was a total fabrication, that this 15-year-old girl was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador, that she was part of the royal family, that she had never been in the hospital, that the entire story was a total fabrication. But based upon all of this, the UN Security Council authorizes the use of all necessary means to force Iraq's evacuation from Kuwait. Uh, but in order to get that vote, it was an expensive vote for the US and its allies. Uh, Egypt had $14 billion of debt canceled by the United States and the Gulf states, canceled another almost $7 billion uh, of, of Egyptian debt. Syria received $2 billion from Europe, uh, Japan, Saudi Arabia, and other Arab states. The Saudis gave the Soviets a billion dollars. Uh, this goes on and on. The one country that voted against, joined Cuba to vote against it was Yemen. And as a result, Yemen was punished for opposing this, this, uh, this UN intervention, a US intervention. Uh, a senior US diplomat told us, the out Yemeni ambassador, he says, that was the most expensive no vote you've ever cast. And three days later, the US cut $79 million, or $70 million in aid to Yemen. The World Bank and the IMF squeezed Yemen. The Saudis expelled 800,000 Yemeni workers. And so, 
this is the, a lesson was learned. If you mess with the United States and you vote against us in that way, uh, you're in deep trouble. If you support us, you're going to get a lot of needed financial support. And so the U.S. does invade. Also, uh, Cheney and Scowcroft went on television and started scaring the American people about the Iraqi nuclear program. Right. And they started saying that the Iraqis could have nuclear weapons within a year. Scowcroft told David Brinkley that Saddam could maybe achieve nuclear weapons within months. We saw that same nuclear threat played out in the next invasion of Iraq in 2003. The same idea. We don't want the smoking gun to be in a you know, mushroom cloud, as uh, Condoleezza Rice and others kept saying over and over again. So, but that's the game plan. Scare the American people, lie to the American people, mislead the American people, the rest of the world, manipulate the public, and then use force. And so the U.S. had 560,000 troops in the region, uh, about 700,000 were going to serve by the end of the war. And the U.S. started hyping the number of Iraqi troops. Uh, Colin Powell estimates a half million, Cheney estimates a million, and Schwarzkopf on at least one occasion estimated one and a half million Iraqi troops. And so uh, the Americans were afraid that what Saddam would do if he were smart would be to withdraw Iraqi troops in the last minute before the, the invasion began. But Saddam Hussein, as we know, was not that smart. And so on January 17th of 1991, the US begins Operation Desert Storm and it's uh, a massacre, a bloodbath. The retreating Iraqi troops were trapped in what was called the highway of death and they were simply slaughtered by the Americans who made their first use of depleted uranium, which is gonna cause massive uh, long-term uh, uh, birth defects and cancer and, and not only to the Iraqis, but also to the American troops. We, you know, they suffered from what was called Gulf War Syndrome. So this was a, a pretty awful development. And Professor, my question is, why didn't Bush 41, when he had the chance, take uh, Saddam Hussein out of power? And why did his son, uh, George W. Bush, uh, want to instead of his dad? Actually, Powell was opposed to it. Cheney was opposed to taking Saddam out when they had the chance then. They could have done it, but the U.S. did not want to occupy Iraq. We saw how well that went in 2003 when the U.S. occupied Iraq. Right. And so H.W. Bush thought that they could accomplish their goals in terms of geopolitics, sending a message to the world that the U.S. is the one dominant superpower, also get uh, rest the oil away from Iraq and cripple Iraq with the sanctions. You know, Iraq is going to be crippled economically, health-wise, over the next decade. Uh, that's why when Madeleine Albright, it was in 1998, was asked about the half million Iraqi children who had died as a result of the U.S. destroying Iraq's infrastructure, cutting off access to health care and, and other necessary supplies. And she said, basically, that yes, it was worth the cost to achieve what we achieved in Iraq. It was not, obviously. But also during this time, we should mention uh, the US relations with Russia, because that was another disaster. 
So right. after after uh, Bush, uh, uh, or or basically what two things are happening here? On the one hand, the U.S. advisors go in there, especially after Gorbachev leaves power on Christmas Day, and Yeltsin is in power, and the U.S. advisors come in there and they put Russia through shock therapy. And the effect of that on the Russian economy, basically privatizing overnight was that the Russian economy simply collapsed. In untold history, I put a lot of the blame on Jeffrey Sachs and from Columbia, I guess Harvard then and Columbia now. And, and, and Sachs wrote me and he said, Peter, you guys sure you know, gave it to me hard and he tried to defend his case. He said, you put me through the ringer. Uh, he, he said that in Poland, they did accept his advice. In Russia, they did not accept his advice. Uh, and so he says that he doesn't really deserve the blame for what happened in Russia. Uh, so, you know, and, and we've been in touch since and he's really actually a good guy and has done a lot of good things and said a lot of good things since. But there was this heady atmosphere that they could privatize these economies overnight. The effect in, in Russia was devastating. Life expectancy goes from 66 to 57 years. Uh, by 1998, more than 80% of Russia's farms had gone bankrupt. Uh, the Russian economy, GDP was cut in half. The economy shrank to the size of Holland's. Uh, and by 2000, capital investment stood at 20% of what it had been a decade earlier. 50% of Russians were earning less than $35 a month, the official poverty line. Uh, others were just above that. It was a terrible situation there. The Russian, there was a popular Russian joke. The Russians used to say, they thought that the communists had been lying to them about socialism and communism, but it turned out they were only lying about socialism, meaning communism was as bad as they had, I mean, capitalism was as bad as they had ever warned that it was. So that was the one thing. The second was the uh, unification of Germany in 1990. Right. Gorbachev was promised by all the leaders, the Americans, the Brits, the Germans, that if he allowed the unification of Germany, NATO would not expand one thumbs width to the east. NATO would not expand into East Germany. And we know that right from the very beginning, NATO was already planning to break that promise. NATO was planning to expand into Eastern Europe. They don't start enacting it officially till 1998, when they expand into three countries right. uh, in 1998. But the plans were on the books right from the very beginning. And I could give you the quotes, for, you know, but, but as uh, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow at the time, Jack, Mat Mat Jack Matlock says, the U.S. gave the Soviets a clear commitment that they would not expand. Uh, the uh, German newspaper, Der Spiegel, did its own investigation in late 2009, and it concluded that clearly the case was that they promised Gorbachev they wouldn't expand. The problem was Gorbachev trusted them, so he never got this in writing. And so now the Russia, now they, uh, NATO has expanded 13 countries to the east, right up to Russia's doorstep. And that's still the source of great tension between the US and Russia today. And when George W. Bush talked about expanding NATO to Russia and Georgia in 2008, 
that was too far. And that's really part of what caused the total current collapse of US-Russian relations. So this is a time when things could have gone much better. There was great potential for the world to be better, uh, but the United States was not willing to act in a friendly way, in a way that collegial way, in a way that represented American interests and Russian interests. We saw it as a zero sum game and the US was going to assert itself as Colin Powell says with put out the sign superpower lives here and we don't care what anybody else thinks or does. Well, Professor, this concludes this episode of the Untold History of the United States. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Matt. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you as well to all our listeners. The next time we come back, we will be analyzing Bill Clinton's presidency and the project of the new American century. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at McGill International Review for more up-to-date insight and analysis on global issues and international affairs.